And we're come to his dramatic conclusion of that text this morning um, on concerning the judgment of the nations. Now, when we think of the judgment of the nations, we think of the separating of the sheep and the goats. We, we often, at least in my mind, I think in a very negative sense. I think of judgment. I think of uh, the anger of God coming down. But as I was going through this passage, I was so encouraged because there's so much to say about us who have accepted Jesus Christ and who believe in Him as our Lord and Savior. You know, the Bible has so much to say about judgment. It's, it's a major biblical theme. In Psalm chapter 7, this verse actually surprised me. I'm not sure where I've been all my life. This verse can just kind of popped out to me. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11, it tells us that, quote, God is angry with the wicked every day. Wow. And maybe that's the reason why the Bible has so much to say about judgment. Because God is so concerned about judging sin all the time. In Psalm 1.5 it says, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. You know, I think most people, even most Christians, um, think that judgment is pretty much an, an Old Testament thing, Right? I mean, God, God is a God of wrath. God's God of anger there in the Old Testament. He's angry. He's destroying people. He's destroying nations. He's causing nations to wipe out other nations. But in the New Testament, we think you know, God, God is presented as a God of love, right? He's a God of grace. So the Old Testament is a God of judgment. New Testament is a God of, gra- a God of grace and, and judge, but, uh, 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 of love. But the fact is that God is presented as a God in love, of love in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is also presented as a God of judgment both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God does not change. There is no difference in Him. The message of judgment is equally important in the New Testament and in a very real sense even more dramatically presented in the New Testament than it is in the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, it's for all of eternity. It's final. And that message is preached throughout the Gospels, it's preached throughout the Epistles, and with a, a massive, dramatic end in the book of Revelation. New Testament talks about hell. It talks about a place of fire and brimstone. It talks about a lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you know, it's so easy for people to become complacent in their sin, isn't it? Ah, Not too bad. I'm pretty good. That sin wasn't too bad. But we need to remember that God is angry with the wicked every day. So in the Olivet Discourse that we've been studying here in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus shares the cataclysmic events that are going to take place against the wickedness of man and the sin of the world. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, God said, My spirit will not contend with man or with people forever. 
So here in this final sermon to his disciples, Jesus goes through a series of signs and then, and then discusses that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And then it ends up with a warning passage. The whole second half of his message, um, the vast majority of chapter 25, is a message of warning. And we went through that. The parable of the bridesmaids and the parable of the faithful and the unfaithful servants were intended to warn us that we must be ready when the King of Kings returns. The bridesmaids weren't ready and were shut out. The servant who wasn't ready and did nothing with the talent that was given to him was thrown out. And then comes a very judgment itself in verses 31 through 46, which we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, if you remember in Revelation chapter 10, an angel comes to John, uh, the, the apostle John, in a vision. And he comes to John and opens up a scroll. It's called the little scroll. And he's showing John what's to come. Then John's told to eat the scroll. Because he has to prophesy about all this to all the nations. He has to write this all down to proclaim it. And it tells us that he ate it. And verse 10 says... It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. As he thought about the second coming, it was sweet because he could see the glory of Christ and the fulfillment of the prophecy and the glories of the kingdom to come. But it made him sick to his stomach because he knew it meant the damnation of those who rejected God. There is no escape. For the wicked. In fact, Romans 1.18, Paul tells us the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the judgment that's referred to in our passage here this morning is that final judgment on the earth that happens at the second coming of Christ. We've been dealing with the second coming of Christ for quite some time. It's a judgment when the Son of Man comes in His glory. He sits on His glorious throne to establish His kingdom. And it will be a judgment of all peoples. It tells us that in verse 32. And at that point, there will be a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous, um, irreversibly and eternally. So I want us to turn in our Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be starting at verse 31 and read through to the end of the chapter. Matthew 25, starting with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from the other as as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you you gave me something to eat. I, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger invite you in, or or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous <laughs> to eternal life. So, in a nutshell, when the Son of Man comes, he will sit on his throne of glory. He will then gather all the people uh, that exist at that time because the rapture of the church will already have uh, taken place, so that there will be far fewer. But the Jews and Gentiles alike, he will then separate them. Uh, and the ones on his right hand, verse 34, will go into his kingdom. The ones on his left hand, verse 41, will be kept out of his kingdom forever. So that's the, that's the picture. So we're now all the way in the chronology of Jesus' sermon here to the establishment of his millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation, it tells us that the Lord Jesus will come to establish the earthly kingdom of a thousand years. In chapter 20, if you remember, it says Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Verse 3. And in verse 4, it tells us that the saints will reign with Christ for those thousand years. Jesus is going to come back. He came the first time in humiliation. He comes the second time in glory. The second time he comes, he comes to set up his kingdom. But before the kingdom can begin, it's got to be determined who can go into the kingdom and who must be kept out. And that's what we have here, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. So we read in verses 31 and 32, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's a judgment taking place. Who's the judge? You know, usually people are very general about that. Uh, statements are usually, God's going to judge the world, or, or you're going to be judged by God. But in John 5, 22, Jesus himself tells us the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. This is essentially what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, a verse we all know very well, especially when it comes to missions, when he said, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Father delegated judgment authority to his Son. He delegated authority over the church to his Son, and that's why uh, the Son could command the church to go and preach the gospel in all nations. The Son also is responsible for judgment, and so it's quite clear that Jesus Himself at this time, at the second coming, is going to be the judge of the world. You know, if people only realized that the name that they use to curse with, the name they demean and scoff at, the name they say doesn't exist, is a figment of your imagination, it's just a crutch that you guys use, if they only knew that the one who bears that name is the judge of the universe and that he will be their final judge, it would shake them to the core. 
That's what we find here in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from the other. You know, something struck me about the awesomeness of Jesus coming to earth. And that was this. The amazing thing about Christ's coming is not His second coming. The remarkable thing is not that Jesus will come in glory and judge the world. It's not that he's coming the second time. No, it's, it's a fact that he came the first time to do what he did. What is remarkable is that he came to redeem, redeem sinners who were worthy only of his judgment. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2. You know the verse well. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of what? Of wrath. That's what we deserved. We were deserving of death. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. George Beverly Shea used to sing a song that said, There's the wonder of sunset and evening, the wonder as sunrise I see, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. Oh, the wonder of it all, he sang, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. See, it's amazing that a holy God came to forgive sinners. Not that a holy God comes to judge sinners. The fact that he comes back to judge sin is not remarkable at all. That's absolutely consistent with his nature. So Matthew says here in verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Paul describes it in 2 Thessalonians 1.7, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. It's going to be an incredible scene. Back in chapter 24, you remember Jesus told us that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, total blackness, pitch blackness. Then, he says, will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. So when Christ returns to judge from his glorious throne, he's not coming alone He's got all the angels with him. But more than that, we will be with him. You remember that. Let me remind you, Revelation 19.14 tells us that the armies of heaven were following him from heaven back to earth at at the last uh, last coming, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white, uh, white and clean. That's referring to the church that was raptured before the tribulation. Remember the fine linen, white and clean, refers to the righteousness of Christ that was given to us because we've been washed in the blood and and made pure as snow. The angels didn't need that because they they, they were already without sin. Paul tells us the same thing in Colossians 3, 4, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So when he comes with all of his angels with him, not, not some, but, but how many? He says all, all of his angels. It's going to be amazing. How many is all? 
Well, the closest that we can come to in Scripture to figuring that one out is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, where it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. That's a hundred million plus angels. It's going to be quite a spectacle, plus all the church saints, both past and present. When we, we say saints, we're referring to all the followers of Jesus Christ who have been saved by grace. When he comes with his whole entourage of angels and saints and sits on his glorious throne, that's the time the judgment will take place. Now, where is his glorious throne going to be? Well, Isaiah chapter 9 actually tells us that. You'll remember that this this is a prophecy given of the coming of the Messiah, that a child will be born in verse 6, where it says, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And listen to what it says in verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign, where? On David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So where's the throne of David? (laughs) It's the city of Jerusalem. In other words, he will reign and rule from Jerusalem in a thousand-year kingdom on this earth. And when the thousand-year kingdom is over, he'll continue to reign throughout all of eternity with a new heaven and earth. You remember in Luke when the child was to be born and the angel made the announcement to Mary? The angel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's an amazing verse. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The angel in one statement spoke of the beginning and the end of his first coming and his second coming. The late Adrian Rogers described it this way. I I used this in a quote in our Sile Soul a couple weeks ago. He came the first time to die. He's coming again to raise the dead. When he came the first time, they questioned whether he was king. The next time the world would know that he is a king of kings and lord of lords. The first time he wore a crown of thorns, the next time he will be wearing a crown of glory. The first time he came in poverty, the next time he, he's, uh, he, he is coming in power. The first time he had an escort of angels, the next time he will come with ten thousands of his saints. The first time he came in meekness, he is coming again in majesty. What a difference. So the next question would be, so who are the people to be judged? Who are the people to be judged? Verse 32 tells us, all the nations. All the nations. The Greek word used here is ethnos, ethnic group. Every tribe, people group, and nation. All nations, Matthew says here, or Jesus says here in Matthew, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All people are going to be separated. There are only going to be separated into two groups. The sheep and the goats in this analogy. Sheep go, go into the kingdom, goats go out of the kingdom or kept out of the kingdom. As far as God's concerned, there are only two classes of people. The saved and the lost. Ultimately, that's the only distinction that matters. There are only two destinies, heaven and hell. 
And so that division must be made in regard to all people. And the distinction here has nothing to do with ethnic identity. It only has to do with one's relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, why sheep and goats? Why in the world did he use that example? He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, apparently in that area of the world, it was a very common thing for shepherds to do periodically, to separate the sheep and the goats. Rather than keeping all the goats, uh, the sheep penned in in, in a pen, uh, from what I understand, uh, sheep kind of eat all the way down to there's almost nothing left the grass. So they, they get them out on the hillside um, eating and things of that sort. And while they're out there, apparently there are a lot of goats. Some may have goat herds that are out there. Other maybe just goats out uh, wandering uh, free roaming. And they naturally just kind of mingle together and they kind of follow along with the crowd or the flock. Periodically, the shepherd would have to divide the sheep from the goats because sheep and goats don't feed well together and they don't rest well together. And the reason for that is that sheep are basically docile, gentle, easily led, and easily scared. Goats, on the other hand, are unruly, rambunctious, and almost fearless, and they create all kinds of trouble for the poor sheep. And so the separation needs to be made. And in the same way that a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats, so Jesus in his coming will separate believers from non-believers. Now notice verse 33. We see this analogy taken a step further. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Why? Just that statement alone speaks volumes. The right hand is the hand of blessing. The right hand is the hand of honor. The right hand is a hand of inheritance. This has always been the case in Scripture. Let me give you a quick example. You remember the story of Jacob back in the Old Testament. Uh, there came a time when Jacob was going to bless uh, his grandsons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And when Jacob uh, went to pronounce the blessing on the sons, it was, he was very careful to make sure that he placed his right hand on the correct son, the oldest son, because that very simple act of just placing his hand on, on that young man indicated that he was the heir, that he was a child of inheritance, that he was blessed. And so you remember, perhaps, that when they were brought to him, the, the, two, the two boys, Ephraim, the oldest, came and he was on his left side. And in order to be sure that Ephraim got the right hand, Jacob crossed his arms over and made sure he put his right hand on Ephraim, blessing him, symbolizing the blessing and inheritance. And that's what we have going on here in our passage as well. Jesus, by placing the sheep on his right, was blessing them and ushering them into their inheritance. Isn't that neat? Then in verse 34, Jesus speaks to them and says, Something that must have been amazing to hear. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, a kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Can you imagine? Jesus is no longer just the Son of Man. Jesus is no longer just the Messiah. Jesus is the king. And the king himself says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's amazing. 
And as we move on in this passage, Jesus tells us how he's going to make that decision. Now, this is fascinating, and some people have had uh, some difficulty with this passage from time to time. Look at verses 35 and 36. He's saying, here's the reason, here's how I choose the sheep, or who's going to be the sheep. It says, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. What's going on here? Are we back to works again? Are we back to doing in order to be chosen in, in, as far as our salvation, salvation by works? Can you get into kingdom because your basic human kindness? Can you get into the kingdom because all the social action that, that you, you may be involved in? There are a lot of people who are pretty good people. I've met some very good people. But is pretty good or even very good good enough? The answer to this problem of salvation by works is actually back in verse 34, which we just looked at. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Let me explain. First of all, it emphasizes the source of salvation. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. You are entering into the kingdom because my Father has determined to bless you. He redeemed you, he bought you back with his sovereign love, and it's only through Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Only through Christ. Secondly, we see the gift of salvation. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your what? Your inheritance. Take your inheritance. You inherit something because what? You are born into a family, right? It implies again that they already belong to the family of God. The only way you can belong to the family is by faith. Scripture is very clear about that. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. As Paul puts in Romans 8.17, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's our inheritance And then thirdly, we see the selection of salvation. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. That's an amazing thought. When God prepared the kingdom, it was for you that he prepared it. God knew all who were going to believe, and he designed and prepared a kingdom for them. And when did he prepare it? That's even more amazing. Since the creation of the world. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, when it says that God created the world, at the same time, He was preparing His kingdom for us. Isn't that incredible? Now, who are these people going in? Well, they're not just people who've gotten involved in social action. They're not just people who did good deeds on the earth and were pretty good people. These are those chosen from the foundation of the world by the sovereignty of God to receive His grace and to be blessed and who responded by faith and became His heirs in the family. All of that is found in verse 34. God's Word is amazing. We've got to understand that 
what 34 means to really understand verses 35 and 36. You see, the good deeds mentioned in those verses are not the primary emphasis. The primary emphasis in identifying these people is back in verse 34. The good deeds are the fruit of the free gift of salvation that we have received by faith. Listen to how Peter says it in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. There it is again. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's what He's prepared for us. Kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Second coming of Christ. So the works that Jesus talks about here are are only outward evidences of the inward sovereign grace that has already taken place. And when he says come into the kingdom on the basis of these works... He is, in a sense, judging them according to their words, but, works, but only as far as their works are a manifestation of the inner work already done in the heart by God's grace. He says, I know you belong in my kingdom because you met all the needs that I, in my case, you ministered to me in those areas. So you come back to verse 35, 36. Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. The kingdom is for people who do that for Christ. That indicates their genuine salvation. Jesus made this all about himself. He was very specific in personalizing this. You did all these things for me because I am living in them. That's important. Because verse 37 to 39 gives a response from those on the right. Then the righteous will answer him. It's not the good deeders. It's not the philanthropists or the social action people. Anybody can, anybody can do good things for others. But here it says, It was the righteous, those who had already, were already saved by grace, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? We don't remember seeing you hungry and thirsty or wandering around like a stranger or, 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 or needing clothes. What are you talking about? Listen, verse 40, the king will reply. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I think he's simply saying, whatever you do to meet the need of a fellow Christian, you did it for me. The Apostle Paul recognizes this in his writings. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but who? Christ lives in me. Christ is in his people. So what is done to me as a Christian is done to him because he lives in me. 
Does that mean that we shouldn't do anything for other people that are hurting and and in need? No, not at all. But that's showing God's grace and love to them so that God can then draw them to himself. But Jesus talked about something different here. Back in Matthew 10, uh, verse 40, Jesus says, Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Boy, that's, that's a whole other dimension, isn't it? When you open your arms to a fellow believer, you're receiving Christ. And when you're receiving Christ, you're receiving the Father whom Christ represents. It's an amazing thought. What you do to another believer is what you do to Christ. And so he says to those who are gathered on his right hand, you who are chosen by the Father to be blessed by his grace and because of his mercy, the righteousness of Christ has been transferred to you That has caused you to demonstrate the love of God to the people of God. And that's the eternal mark of our genuineness, and therefore I take you into my kingdom, he's basically saying. Now, let me go a step further. How does that play out? One theologian wrote, it's always manifest righteousness, righteousness that manifests itself in us, that marks a true believer. That's spoken of in Scripture. It is always a product of the life that demonstrates the reality of life. It's what James says, faith without works is what? It's dead. It's non-existent. Now let's take a step further. There are going to be some people gathered in the final judgment who are going to say, Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, you remember that verse? Did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What's going on? That seems to be contradicting what he's saying here in Matthew 25. But you see, it's not the great and mighty miraculous deeds that Jesus is looking for in us. Why? Because Satan can counterfeit, counterfeit miraculous things. It's been in Scripture. Signs and wonders. It isn't those monumental outward successes that demonstrate the proof of true salvation. Rather, it's that day-to-day routine of grace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and patience. The fruit of the Spirit. It's that demonstrated toward believers in need that proves the case. It's the simple daily acts of love and kindness that we show to one another that manifest the indwelling presence of the living God. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he summed it up very simply uh, by saying in John 13, 35, love one another. He's talking to believers, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are what? My disciples. The proof is in manifest love, in the routine things of life, in the caring for those that are in need. And similar in Romans chapter 2, isn't it? Where it says in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. (laughs) Sounds like works again. To those who by persistence, one translation says patient of continuance, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. It's the outward evidence. 
See, Jesus is not looking for the spectacular. He's looking for the everyday, simple acts of kindness to one another. And that's the manifestation of Christ in us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we read this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for whom? For our brothers and sisters. Isn't that interesting? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so those people that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's happiness. Come on into the kingdom. Come on over to the right side where I can bless you. And the rest of the people... Well, they're on his left, his left hand. What happens to them? Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Folks, hell was not originally prepared for people. It was not. That was never God's desire. Hell was prepared for the unredeemable devil and his angels who fell from grace, and there was no way of redeeming them. There's no plan to redeem them. Those who were once pure and holy in the very presence of God chose unholiness in their rebellion, and there is no coming back from that. There is no remedy for that, and so God prepared a place for the devil and for his angels in in the everlasting fire that was for them. But people have chosen to identify in that rebellion, in their rebellion, and they go there by choice to a place not even intended for them. That's the sad part about it all. Because God created men and women for fellowship with himself. That's why he created us. They have chosen by their non-choice. Jesus says in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And in the final judgment, he will say, Depart from me. Depart from me. Why? Verse 42 and 43. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And interestingly, their response was the same as the, the, the response from the righteous ones. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? It's not fair, they're going to say. When did we ever see you? How, 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 how could we do those things if we never even saw you? His answer in verse 45, he will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these. Who? My people. He's still referring to his people. You did not do for me. See, it wasn't because of some horrible thing that they did that kept them out of the kingdom. It's for what they did not do. You remember the bridesmaids? It wasn't because of some horrible thing and uh, these horrible five bridesmaids uh, that they they weren't allowed into the celebration. It was because of what they didn't do. They didn't take the time to get the oil that they needed and be prepared for the bridegroom. 
There are so many people today that are actually trying to do good. They are. They help people. They give money to charities. They're not mean and nasty people. And people are damned to hell by what they don't do. Strong language, but Scripture is strong. And what they don't do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the absence of righteousness. It's the absence of the love of God that comes through faith in Christ. And without that, their good deeds don't count for righteousness. So what happens to them then? When Jesus says, depart from me, you are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I would propose that they die. Right there on the spot. Number one, Jesus says, then they will go away to eternal punishment. That's kind of an immediate statement. But secondly, we also find in Zechariah chapter 14 that it tells us that the day of the Lord comes and his feet are placed on the Mount of Olives and a great valley, a valley is created and the nations will be brought to be judged. Exactly what Jesus is talking about. And verse 9 says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name the only one. And then the judgment falls. Listen to verse 12. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. (laughs) Pretty gruesome. But that sounds like it's immediate. But then the last thing he says in chapter 25, but the righteous (laughs) will go to eternal life. The righteous will go to eternal life. That's why Jesus came, because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus and Jesus only, will not perish, will not be condemned, will not be sent to hell, but will have eternal life. What a promise. What an inheritance that we have. But folks, that is the choice of every person. That's how eternity will be, just two places. If Jesus were to come today, question for us to think about ourselves. If Jesus were come today, where would you go? Would you be on the right and allowed entrance into the kingdom? Or would you be on the left being told to depart, to enter into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Very serious question, very serious thought. I trust that we are going to be blessed. We're going to be on the right side with a hand of blessing coming down and says, Welcome, you who are favored by my Father, who are blessed by my Father. Here's your inheritance. It's a wonderful thing. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank you for the inheritance that you have prepared from us from the creation of the world. My goodness. The forethought. Knowing how the love that you have for, for your creation And the gift that you sent in your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for these sinners, these people who are rebelling against you, these people who deserve death, who deserve your wrath, but you came and you sent Jesus. He said, just come. It's a free gift. Accept my Son. Trust Him as Lord and Savior. And I've got this wonderful inheritance for you to live with me, to rule with me for all of eternity. Father, if there is one this morning, whether it's in the sanctuary, whether it's on Facebook, that, that 
is questioning, well, have, have I really done that? Or have I, am I just kind of been going through the motions, trying to be good and, and trusting that because God's a God of love, he'll, he'll, he'll accept me. But Father, if we have never made that decision for Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our, our hearts powerfully this morning. But Father, at the same time, we give you glory, we give you honor for what you have for us and the saving grace and the fact that we can have joy now because of Jesus living in us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.